And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this week, once again, I'm going to take a dive right off into the deep end on a subject matter that I know nothing about. As a matter of fact, I could even say that I'm an outsider, and that is the music industry. I love music. Don't get me wrong. I think music is is absolutely wonderful to listen to. However, when it comes to the jargon, the industry terms, I know nothing. I don't know how the business works at all. So luckily on the show, uh, today I've got Bruce Adams, who ran Cranky Records in Chicago during the early 90s and was really influential in the indie rock scene. So he's going to educate me not only on the business, but how he started his label, how it progressed, and how it became such an influential piece, not only in rock history, uh, but in in Chicago's history as well. It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So Bruce... Thank you so much for being on the show today. Let me ask you this. So do you like Bruce um, or, or do, you, do you still go by Gomez or is it is it just Bruce? It's Bruce. Uh, Gomez was a nickname thrown at me by my old editor at Your Flesh Fanzine, Peter Davis. It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's his idea of a joke. And as someone who, uh, who grew up having little kids sing to me that the Adams family started with Uncle Fester farted. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that amused by it. <laughs> well, I, I, I was terribly amused when I saw that picture. Uh, but it, yeah, I mean, it's a little, a little on the nose given your last name. Um, but uh, it is fun. It, I do remember that. I haven't heard that, that jingle in a long time. Uh, that is quite a blast from the past, uh, no pun intended. Uh, so now, uh, from, from what I understand, you are currently the editorial writer for the U of I Chicago College of Dentistry, correct? That's right. So the, uh, the college in particular uh, hired me to communicate Help them communicate with their alumni. Help shake down donors. <laughs> well, I can tell you a lot of fun facts about the College of Dentistry. <laughs> I would love to hear them. I mean, you know, dentistry is amazing, but I don't know if my math is quite correct on this, Bruce, but that might be about as close as a 180 degree from running an indie rock label. Uh, is that pretty close? Yeah, it's pretty close. Uh I sold my share of Cranky uh, at the end of 2005 and, and have uh, transitioned into a more general line of marketing and communications, uh, mostly lately in higher ed, which is how I ended up where I live now in Urbana, Illinois. Oh, that makes – okay, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, I think – I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you just mentioned the end kind of at your time with Cranky, which is 2005. And for those listening, Cranky was an independent rock label in Chicago right around the heyday. And when I say heyday, I mean, this is kind of my heyday of rock because the early 90s to the 2000s were really my favorite time in rock music. But uh, I got to tell you, I, I am definitely a neophyte when it comes to the music scene. So we're going to hopefully get into some of that stuff. So for people listening who may not be well-versed in, in rock and roll or even music in general, we're going to talk about some of those things uh, because we're going to talk about your book, You're With Stupid, uh, about your time at Cranky. And to be honest with you, Bruce, no title could be more apropos than our conversation today because, in fact, you are definitely with Stupid. Well... Uh, stupid can be cured. Uh, <laughs> Good, that terminal. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll take you back again. Okay. If you were a teenager, say going to the state or the county fair, you might see someone with a T-shirt that says "I'm with stupid." Definitely. Yeah, I remember those. So that's 
that's where that slogan came from. Uh, we, when we were starting up Cranky and we were making T-shirts and putting out ads in music magazines, mm-hmm. uh, we were looking we were looking to invert some uh, popular sayings or phrases. So that we came up with uh, a friend of ours came up with "You're stupid." We also uh, had T-shirts made that said uh, "Let a frown be your umbrella." Uh-huh, right. <laughs> I like that. So you kind of you kind of mix and match some of those. I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I absolutely remember those "You're with stupid" shirts with a big arrow pointing either left or right. One of my friends had one of those. It's definitely mm-hmm. a product of the early '90s. Well, so let's, you know, we're talking about the early 90s. Let's talk about the early days with you, Bruce. Uh, how did you get into music? Because normally, you know, when, because you weren't, uh, I want to know if you were a musician and, and how, if that was any, any, any part of your passion or if you just, you know, wanted to be close to music. Uh, tell me how all this started. Well, I'm not a trained musician. I think when I was in elementary school, I tried, I took viola lessons for a while and that didn't stick. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've, uh, I've been interested in music for as long as I can recall. Uh, my, what, uh, I think about with the music that Cranky put out and a lot of the music I listen to, to this day, my parents had a big selection of records. Uh, and I would listen on headphones. So as not to disturb them, and when I became old enough to buy my own records or go to the library and take out records, which I did a lot, you know, my parents would definitely not be interested in uh, the Allman Brothers Live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. or Led Zeppelin or the Beatles, which I was really interested in. Sure. Uh, so right. I listened on headphones. And so um, that was really, I think, in, in some ways, a formation of a, an aesthetic for me uh, and a way of appreciating things. Also, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, which at that time was more or less a backwater. It was, I could listen to the college radio station intermittently. There was one FM radio station in town and uh, and going to see going to see bands at say a nightclub or something even when I became eight, even when I was 18 and old enough to go out uh, groups were not playing original music interesting okay. at that level in those days but I did uh, I did stumble into all of that when I ended up in college I started listening to uh, WCBN FM in Ann Arbor, the University of Michigan. I became a DJ there. Okay. Oh wow. Um, went to graduate school at, at Syracuse University. Uh, wrote some music reviews and things for the Daily Orange, which is a newspaper there. Mm-hmm. Eventually, uh, when I got my degree, I moved back to Ann Arbor to look for a job. And that was a degree in, in journalism, right? You got a master's in journalism? Yeah, I have a degree in journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communication. Wow. I took okay. a job at a record store. I needed a job, and I took a job at a record store. And that was a little snowball on top of the hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started rolling, and I've been, I worked in the music business uh, for, I moved to Chicago to work for a distributor there, a wholesale distributor. Then I got a job at, the legendary touch and go label. Well, let's go. Let's go back. I want to pause you for a second because you moved to Chicago in 1987, um, and I mm-hmm. think. Uh, let me see if my facts are right here. Um, you got you became a roadie for the Laughing Hyenas, right? Yes. And that's a little more hands on for those listening. A roadie's very hands on with equipment and everything. Yeah, it was a it was a great it was a great job because I got to see uh, how one of the great rock and roll bands of my time composed music, practiced, and performed. And in the, in the process of that, I got to see a lot of, a lot of other great bands. Uh, I saw Scream with Dave Grohl drumming. Oh, wow. Okay. I saw, uh, yeah, I have a great ski, uh, Scream story. Um, I saw Decroitson, Sonic Youth, tons of bands at that time. So it was a great introduction to the, the binary uh, of rock music at that level, 
which is excruciating boredom between mm -hmm. travel, setting up shows, <laughs> setting yeah. up the stage, moving in equipment, sitting around for hours and hours, then the band plays, and for 45 minutes, you get that uh, nonstop jolt of electricity. Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then the tedium begins again. Uh, until the next until the next show but uh what? in the process of doing that i met Corey and lisa rusk at touch and go records when i moved to chicago eventually they offered me a job there and then i started getting directly into publicity and promotion got it okay well it's you know it's interesting i love the way you describe you know, the, the actual, you know, when, when it comes down to it, right, when people are in, people who consume entertainment just see the good parts, right? Like they, they just get the fruit of the apple, right? They don't get to see how the tree has grown, uh, you know, and I think that that's interesting because it is, it's really boring. Like I, I you know, I, I've worked in television a long time and people love sitcoms, but putting those together is excruciatingly boring. I mean, there's nothing worse than hearing the same joke five, six, seven times, and then having to rewrite it and hear it again and again. It's not funny. So when you're in the business, it's not, the business of funny is about how to deconstruct funny and reconstruct it for an audience who, for them, hears it the first time. Uh, and I think the same has yeah. got to be very similar in music where it's, you know, the setting up and the creating the sound uh, is really difficult and boring, but, but presenting it to other people, that's the exciting part, especially when they like it. Yeah, it's um, there are two things about it. Mm -hmm. One is it's work. Yeah, definitely. Creative work is work. People, I think, especially now, don't appreciate that. My wife is a graphic designer, um, and people will stop by her in her office from time to time and watch her moving things around on the screen and she tells me they tell her oh that looks like fun it's not fun it's work <laughs> right you know? yeah yeah it's I'm not, true i'm not doing this for jollies you know i get no <laughs> i get yeah. no kick out of adjusting font sizes <laughs> right right you know being in a being a performer being someone who makes recorded work mm -hmm. uh, is uh like as you said about comedy, there's a lot of repetition. Repetition. I've had the pleasure of being in recording studios when albums are being recorded. And I learned pretty early off the bat uh, not to comment on anything until I was asked. Mm -hmm. And then I would be listening to the same little phrase in a song 20 times, 30 times, mm -hmm. as band and engineer are trying to either get a sound correct or consider changing even the performance or changing the balance of instruments. Yep. Uh, there's a lot to it mm -hmm. uh, behind, the, behind the scenes. It's, it's fascinating, uh, but as a non-musician non uh, and as a person who had a much smaller stake in the process, uh, I learned that my, the value I added was uh, being able to show up at show up on time at the place where I was needed. <laughs> it's easy, right? I mean, at least you could say that that's that should be pretty easy. Uh, it should I mean, be. It should be. It should. It should be. You know, uh, whatever progress I had uh, in the business, I attribute to the fact that other people couldn't manage that. <laughs> right. <So. laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, I, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I'm not particularly well versed in the music industry, which is why topics like this fascinate me. I get to dive in and, and really sink my teeth into it. And just recently, I watched uh, uh, Some Kind of Monster, I believe it. It's the Metallica documentary from the early oh, 2000s. Yeah. And it, it's, I mean, that's a real backstage look. But that that uh, the documentary is interesting because it's taking this like hardcore rock, you know, these eighty hair band who's you know known. For, I mean, they were you know I had someone make a joke to me about them being devil worshippers recently. I mean, that person was probably in their sixties or whatever, so didn't quite know that Metallica is not really like mm -hmm. that. Um, but that that my point is that persona persists, and so when you watch them in a documentary, 
with a therapist trying to keep them together and this this rock band talking about their feelings. And then all the hard work. I mean, it was a two-year process for them to put out that album, and it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't easy. And all you get to see is them like, you know, as an audience member, if you're not watching the documentary, all you see them is jamming out on stage to your favorite songs. It's so different. The life that's presented is not the life that exists, which is just fascinating. But before we move on from that, I have to I have to tell you this this uh or at least tell you in the audience this joke that I loved from King of the Hill, which I think you'll appreciate. This is one of my favorite ones. This made me laugh. Mm. May not make you laugh, may not make anyone else laugh, but this really made me laugh. Uh so Bobby's talking, he he's met this this band has come through town and he's gotten very close to them. So some people are trying to get him involved in the process. So he says, you know, uh, he's so cool. He told me I could be stubborn stains groupie. And then Hank says, the word's roadie, Bobby. He meant roadie. At least I hope to God. <laughs> it's so funny because you know for someone who doesn't know the difference between a groupie and a roadie you know uh that may not be very funny but once you do again it's knowing the backside of the business uh that really that really cracked me up uh but you know as i mentioned your book's called you're what's stupid and i would like to say and hopefully you'll agree with this statement bruce even though you don't know me that well but i i'm pretty proficient in english you know i speak it pretty well. Uh, I write it, you know, pretty well. But this book, when I was finished with it, it felt like a foreign language in a lot of ways, because there is so much jargon in the industry. And in some ways, it seems like it's purposefully designed to keep people out, you know, not just music in general, but each individual subgenres. And I think in some ways, when I was growing up, I really liked pop music that was popular on the radio. It was very accessible for me. But I met people who were mm-hmm. like really into music and they seemed extraordinarily pretentious and very protective of their type of music and not letting outsiders in. And I think that that level of exclusion for me at that young age kind of kept me away from exploring different forms of music. Now, as someone who was inside and, and you know, creating some of these bands, does that is that on purpose or is that kind of a consequence of just the business itself? Water finds its own level. Mm-hmm. People who were excluded or mocked or demeaned for their interest in music or, or, or that uh, when they were, say, teenagers, mm-hmm. find a way to flip the script and impose that on other people. That makes sense. In 1991, I switched jobs. I moved from cargo distribution, which was a wholesale music business, to Facets Multimedia in Chicago, which was and is a uh, a, whole, a retail mail order business for movies. For, uh, at that point, VHS, but DVD tapes. They have a theater where they show art films. They have a rental space where they rent DVDs. And I realized it was like that Star Trek episode where they go into the alter- they go into the alternative dimension where Mr. Spock has the Fu Manchu mustache. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I realized that I was in this mirror universe where there were people incredibly informed, incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly snobbish about mm-hmm. a different form of expression, film, or they, right. as they yeah. insisted on calling it film when I would say movies. <laughs> right. Oh, well, you're a commoner. Uh, the, yeah, the people in the know right. say film. So, yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah, well, have you heard about Mr. Kurosawa in Iran? And this movie, <laughs> you know, The Taste of Cherries? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. no, somehow I haven't stumbled across that in the multiplex. <laughs> And they were wonderful people, and I learned a lot. But I understood yeah. that I, I was I was just with a different uh, cast of nerds. Sure. So th- there definitely is a lot of gatekeeping, and there definitely are people who are constantly splitting the hair when they're uh, thinking about music or writing about music or describing music. And I get into that a little bit in the book when I talk about the creation of a genre of music that's come to be called post-rock. Right. Um, 
and it works at all, all levels. You know, mm-hmm. it works at uh, in heavy metal, technical death metal. Uh, it works in dance music, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. It be you know there are all sorts of code words there. It be a drumming. What's the difference between drum and bass and jungle? Well, you better get your PhD in that, son, because it's going to take eight years to for you to <laughs> get informed enough. Sure. Yeah. So, so it, it happens in it happens in all levels. Uh, yeah. And it is it's it's gatekeeping. It's also enthusiasm. People ask me all the time, people older than me, people not in the business, what sort of music is this? And I end up always saying weird music mm-hmm. just because it covers a whole it covers a whole panoply of things mm-hmm. I like and I'm interested in. And it also sort of says to people, it's not what you normally listen to and you might find it unusual or outside your experience or maybe even unappealing. <laughs> right. right. Well, I, I will tell you, I listened to a lot of the music from the early Cranky Days. I listened to probably seven albums while reading this. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's not at all what I expected. And to hear the way that, you know, like Labrafer's first album, which I don't even think I can pronounce properly, Precision. I just say Precision. Precision. It's the uh, German spelling of precision. So <laughs> right, right, uh, and and but people talk about it like it changed music forever, and it's interesting because you know to me, I it 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 didn't ripple under my radar. But I I love your your um your parallel description of people in film uh, because you know I have a I can't go through an episode without a shameless plug. I do another podcast about pop culture, science, and technology, and on that I'm the master of film and television because for some strange reason I actually have a master's degree in television, and you know uh, it's film and television, so I knew lots of film people and you're exactly right I you know I didn't see it in myself but but people in in film definitely have that snobbish attitude and I will tell you that um, the taste of cherries actually usurped uh, Citizen Kane for a while on the AFI top 100 so uh, I'm well familiar mm-hmm. well familiar with that with that beautiful piece of, of cinema um, but you know I love that you mentioned genres so really quickly this is how confusing it was for me right? So here are some genres, and I'm going to put up a top 10 list of the strangest music genres on the website. But here are a couple, and tell me how many you recognize, Bruce. So I've got Avant Garage, Krautrock, Dark Ambient, Isolationism, Dissident Tropicalia, Slowcore, Shoegaze, Orc Pop, Math Rock, Lowercase, Vaporwave, Vegan Straight Edge, and Black Midi slash Impossible Music. Uh, how? These are words that I recognize individually, but when put together in this order, uh, it makes my head want to melt. How do you keep track of all this, or do you just uh, pretend that you understand and kind of smile and nod like mm-hmm. I do? I, uh, you made a King of the Hill reference, so I'll make a Simpsons reference. I love it. <laughs> when... Uh, the uh, Galala Palooza episode, and Abe Simpson is talking to this flashback to Abe Simpson talking with young with young uh, Homer. Yeah, and he says, "I used to be with it, and then they moved it, and nobody will tell me where it is." <laughs> it's a great episode, by the way. That is a fantastic episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm always going to keep rocking. Yeah, <laughs> um, but the. Uh, Things proliferate so quickly. Yeah. And then in, uh, in our accelerated digital environment, it moves 10 times faster because someone can invent a name for a type of music. And two days later, it's, it's moved across the world. Right, so, right, uh, yeah. I, at a certain point, I gave up. Uh, you quitter. And some things are inherently some <laughs> things are inherently understandable. Uh-huh. Um, actually, uh, in the world of heavy metal, they're really good at this. Black gaze. Oh, I get that. That's black metal played in a very atmospheric, moody sort of way. Makes sense. If you know one and you know the other, someone has sandwiched them together. And okay, I can follow that. Okay, makes sense. Dungeon okay. synth. 
that kind of makes sense. Sure. Scary music uh, with synthesizers. <laughs> sure. Okay. Like Halloween, like the like the theme song to Halloween, I would say is Dungeon Synth synth, right? Yeah. Or John I would, Carpenter. You know, this is how it works. No, I would say it's proto dungeon synth. Okay. All right. <laughs> Because it's earlier, you know. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah. that's how that's how that extra veneer of pretension. Oh, that's beautiful. That's well done, Bruce. Yeah, I got you. I'm with you. Yeah. So you know, I can I can play that game to a certain point. Yeah. But um, I also came to understand that I'm not. I am no. I am no one's prime audience anymore. Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of music is no longer made for me or directed at me. I'm not part of the the audience. You're Abe Simpson. You've, you've become Abe Simpson. I've become Abe Simpson. Yeah. They, I was with it, and they moved it, yeah. and I'm fine with not being able to find it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and the dis- and thusly the discussion about music at some of those levels. It's no longer anything I worry about. Okay, that's good. But I'm, I'm also a massive college football fan. And so this time of year, for uh, four months out of the year, I am way more concerned with gap integrity and RPOs <laughs> and uh, the, the minutiae of football. Yak. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Vertical, um, vertical yards. Yeah. I'm with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. TFL. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there are all these. There are all these. Uh, there's all this terminology there that I'm. I'm trying to familiarize myself with because it's a. It's a level of nerdiness that is uh, acceptable to people of all ages. Mm-hmm. You know, you. It's like any. It's like anything else. You know, and again, especially with the acceleration of technology. So now, you know, people can people can make bite-sized comedy videos on TikTok. Right. Yeah. Right. I understand it's there. I have no, you know, in the musical in the musical world, I have no uh, particular interest in following every little every branch of the tree. Right. As the tree grows and grows, right. And uh, the the uh, the great thing about writing this book uh, is that in the digital environment now, I can talk about either cranky records or other records mm-hmm. that were put out in 1993 or 1994, and someone can listen to them. Right. Yeah. Right. They have instantaneous access, and hopefully, I I didn't I didn't get too bogged down in the details. Uh, and I, I wrote the book well enough so that if, if someone uh, someone reads it, they can check me and say, "Okay, okay, Adams, let's you get your you get your knickers in a twist about Roy Montgomery, and let me be the judge." Which is <laughs> right, yeah. You know what everybody everybody should have in their in their their aesthetic is uh, now is you have the ability to find out just if something blows their skirt up or not. Right. That makes sense. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I was able to go back and I followed all the bands that you guys signed uh, in the early years and listened to their first albums to see what was similar, what, you know, what blew up your skirt about them, right? Because, you know, as you talk yeah. about when when you were early on, you and Joel, who was your, um, your, your the co-founder of Cranky, when you guys were kind of discussing what you, whether to start a label or whatever is kind of you guys are messing around with it, this album landed on your desk from Laberford, uh, who was in Vancouver, I believe, and it showed up. Richmond, Virginia. Oh, I'm so sorry. Richmond, Richmond Virginia. Virginia. Yes, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And so it showed up, and you guys listened to it, and both of you knew from that demo that this was the first band you wanted to sign. Not only did you want to sign them, they made you want to start a label, if I understand the story correctly. So, you know. Yep, exactly. So why? Why? <laughs> like, wh- like, why? Just tell me, like, what went into that decision? Why them? Why that moment? And why were you willing to pin your hopes and dreams on this one band? And spoiler alert, it ended mm-hmm. up working out. 
but how do you make that decision in that moment? We were uh, at the center of a web. So we worked at this music distributor and every day dozens of records would come in to the warehouse. Uh, Joel was the buyer for this business. So he decided, one of the buyers, so he decided uh, what new recordings from small labels the business itself was going to take a chance on and sell. So some things are well established, some things weren't. If there's a new, you know, if there's a new, those days, if a new Green Day album was available, you know, easy decision. Uh, if a band like the Bradford comes in, you're like, wow, this is a, this is a six minute song. There are no drums. Uh, you can hardly hear the guy sing. Oh, and then there are these crazy synthesizers and guitars. Oh, that's very accurate description. That's a very accurate yeah. description. <laughs> we were interested. We, you know, we talked about, we had great ideas about what, how we thought things should work. Right. We had great ideas about what we would do differently than other people we saw uh, and like other people we saw. But you needed, we needed that spear in the ground. Mm-hmm. And it had to be a different looking, it had to be a different sounding thing than what we were hearing. Because we, it was the high watermark of grunge. Right. The high watermark of alternative rock. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, three or four dudes with guitars and drums was pretty much it. We, at the very least, we saw this, what we considered, what we considered to be a glut. And we wanted to stand out from that. And the Bradford were it. They were unlike anything else we were hearing. And they, it was obvious to us that they didn't stumble into this, that they were intentional about it, they were considered mm-hmm. about it, and they worked at it mm-hmm. right. to get where they were. And one quality we wanted in, in them and in every other band subsequently we worked with, and Joel is still running cranky, and I know he still has this mindset, which is, are you a group or an individual who wants to develop and change and make better work over time? Do you have that capacity? No. Mm-hmm. God bless them. The Ramones figured it out and did it and didn't have to change the recipe. Right. right. Motorhead did not have to change the recipe. <laughs> right. Um, but we were... <laughs> We were interested in people who were willing uh, and able to develop over time to make good records, that make great records, that make superb records, that make exceptional records, that make change people's, you know, and make change people's minds mm-hmm. records. And we thought they had that capacity. Um, so we, you know, Joel had saved some money. I was willing to contribute sweat equity. We were, we were in a position where we knew the people who would sell records for us. We knew the key record stores. We knew the key magazines, the, the radio stations, the college radio network. So we thought, we thought we had our shit together. And I think time proved us correct. The business is still going. We were very much, you know, we were on the periphery of an underground phenomenon anyway. Right. Well, I think that, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think you really were. I, I mean, because as you've mentioned, you know, cranky bands are still quoted today. Uh, the album, the, the label is still going. And, you know, it's it. I, I mean, I'd like to really kind of talk into the aesthetic of what makes all these bands similar. But all the things you're talking about are very uh, make a lot of sense to me, and they are true of all the bands that you guys signed. But it seems to me essentially counterintuitive in that I understand from from you know from a standpoint as a as a you know as a label trying to put bands out that you want them to get better over time. But I think with most most major labels, they want to grab someone who's good now. They don't want to grab someone mm-hmm. who might be okay, but you see potential, 
sign them and have them never reach that potential because yeah, musicians aren't always the most put together group of individuals. You know, I mean, as you've mentioned in the book, you know, some people would take an advance on their deal and buy equipment and upgrade and get better. And some people, uh, as you say, will just put it up their nose or put it into their beer cooler or whatever. Right. So how do you yeah. how can you tell the difference? Because clearly your label was wanted to get the first you know subset A instead of subset B. Yeah, I mean uh, it didn't always work out. Right. <laughs> um, we did, you know. Either there were some bands that you know didn't catch on, or uh, maybe you know had personal issues. Uh, that prevented them from taking the next step. That's part of the course of any human endeavor. Basically, being the name of the record label, right? We were we were contrarians. You have to you have to anticipate a certain amount of resistance, or you know, actually worse, indifference as a musician working with that kind of music and many other types of music. You have to have the you need the wherewithal to push through it. You need the wherewithal to push, you know, if you want to make chart pop, you need the wherewithal to push through the resistance right. and the impediments to that. Yeah, that makes we sense. We had that understanding when they going for us. We never expected, we never anticipated being able to make a living from the label. Hmm. Okay. Our goal, was, our goal was simply to have it support itself. Okay. It's a good first goal, at least. So that it would... You know, we thought that was realistic. Um, and we thought we had the uh, the, the business smarts uh, to enable that. And we, we struck gold a couple times, uh, which propelled us into a into a higher a higher economic level. But even given that, we were still pretty small fried. You know, if if you if you ask someone reasonably familiar with underground music, and you ask them what are what were some what were the big what were the major independent labels in Chicago in the 1990s, they would reasonably say Touch and Go, Drag City, Thrill Jockey. Cranky would 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 be in a uh, a second thought. And that's fine. We were fine. We understood that. We, you know, we understood what we were, where we stood relevant to other other people doing it. Right. And the great thing then and now about uh, the atmosphere and the ecosystem in Chicago was that we were we were accepted and it was understood and everybody supported everybody else, no matter what, you know, no matter where they stood on any perceived uh, totem pole of power or influence or whatever. Right. Coolness. So we were in a good place, I think, physically to do, to do what we did. And we were good in a good place uh, as far as uh, the acceptance of people we saw as our peers. Well, you guys had a very interesting approach, one that I actually really love. So, uh, a couple of things that you guys did that were innovative was you had the the cranky commandments, which I may go through in a second. But one of them, which is nine, is cranky artists shall not talk about Mr. Cranky, only cranky as an entity, meaning the label. Uh, and you also kind of developed Mr. Cranky as a fake spokesperson who was kind of like Jack for Jack in the Box in a way. Um, he kind of spoke for the company. I, I love that. Um, you wanted musicians that couldn't be pigeonholed into a specific time and place, you know, kitschy or too wacky or too mm -hmm. academic. Uh, you wanted accessible bands that didn't sound like anyone else. And you had this uh, aura of Cranky being purposefully cloaked in mystery. Uh, you had this kind of fun thing where you used thrift store ads on space travel, stereo equipment, and the Cold War uh, to kind of create, um, you know, the the the, um, the aesthetic of Cranky. And in some ways, I did a whole episode on the Church of the Subgenius. Uh, I'll put a link to that as well because I think there's a lot of um, 
parallels between what they were doing and what you were doing, which is they were had this underground fake uh, religion that was really a commentary on the political goings on. And while you guys weren't at all doing that type of stuff, you were type t- tapping into a movement, but using old imagery and iconography, what some people would call postmodern to throw out a, a film term. You guys were doing that. And my favorite that you said was analog technology makes space travel possible. And I loved all this because in a lot of ways, that's what I do with this show. Uh, I have this, uh, the intro and the outro. Most people listening to it don't listen all the way to the end of every episode, but I do have this, uh, it's a Morse code beginning and it's supposed to sound like a transmission from another galaxy. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that was all of that is really what you were going for and what you wanted to set you apart and make you unique. Oh, yeah. We were highly aware of Church of the Subgenius. Okay. You know, part of it has to do with our age. Both Joel and I are 62. We grew up in the, you know, we came of uh, cultural awareness in the late 60s, 70s. So things like you know, NASA, right down to things like furniture, yep. imagery, that was the that was the cauldron we were operating in. The Cold War's probably mixed in there too. Uh, There's a lot of that going on. Cold War, yeah. the Cold War, um, Expo '68. Mm-hmm. We uh, this was there was an interview very early on uh, with Mark Mel- with LeBradford. Mm-hmm. And Mark Nelson from LeBradford said, uh, I thought we would all be traveling in space by now. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, that in 1993, looking back on what we were promised as kids in the, in the late 60s and early 70s, mm-hmm. you know, I thought there would be underwater cities and cities on the moon and everybody would have a jetpack. <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, there's a, you know, and that I think that was kind of floating in the air for a lot of people. Uh, the band Stereo Lab that smashed all that stuff together. Yep. And so that was a, that was part of the aesthetic. It was part of uh, the tech, the technical skills we had at the time and the technology that was available to us at the time, right? Like there was no, there was no desktop publishing. So I, and I was at a thrift stores buying old books anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, why not grab this image uh, of an intercontinental ballistic missile? Right. Why not? Why not? And I, it has to be black and white anyway. We're not going to spend the money to get colored films. Right, yeah. You know, that's the, that's the way it worked out. And I took, I took a lot of that uh, from the aesthetics of punk rock that uh, I came up in and that Joel and I came up in when uh, people were putting together show flyers and album covers and they were black and white and there was the ransom le- ransom letter oh yeah uh lettering and cut and paste <laughs> right. and uh, putting all this stuff together so that was uh you know that those that was sort of the stew that uh that we came up with well i love that you know i mean because church of the subgenius was using clip art and you guys were using thrift store you know, thrift store ads. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very similar. You know, I mean, it's 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 that that as you mentioned, you kind of were tapping into something that was going on that uh, people really wanted to see. They didn't want the clean polish. They want they like the DIY aspect of it. You know, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's also I think we talk about music now. Joel and I wanted music that was uh, we're interested in music that was atmospheric, mm-hmm. cinematic. But not smooth, not okay. No, you know, not redolent of new age music. No wind chimes. No uh, <laughs> didgeridoo. No uh, no Inca flutes. Right. You know, and we, Joel came up with a great phrase that he didn't want the music to remind you of a smooth white oval room. Yeah. <laughs> no. We'd like to, we wanted corners and grit, uh-huh. you know, and, and 
um, music that that inspired perhaps a little bit of misgiving or fear or insecurity. It, we, to us, it reflected the time, and it was timeless. Um, you know, and it was you know it was and is I think an expression of the stagnation or a reaction to the stagnation of American culture, mm-hmm. of American pop culture, you know, in the post-Reagan era, in the Reagan and post-Reagan era. Um, so, yeah, like, like the Church of Subgenius, we, we looked at all these things and said, wow, there's, you know, there, there are nutty things going on here, but we can pick through the detritus and find uh, things that appeal to us. Well, what's kind of interesting about, uh, you know, and we talked about, you know, weird genres, and you you mentioned post-rock, and a lot of people have kind of defined what, uh, you know, songs are cranky as post-rock and, and this aesthetic you're talking about. But what's interesting about it to me is that you have, you know, when you're looking at the 80s and the 90s, uh, when you're talking about a rock band, as you mentioned, it's two guitars, a drum, a bassist, a lead singer— Often you know who the you know who the members of the band who they are you know their faces uh, you know their songs you know mm-hmm. their voice they're very you know who the people making the music are with you know the bands you guys were were signing and and releasing albums for you don't know anything there's hardly any there's you know there, there's there's a lot of instruments but it's not the classical rock set of instruments uh, there there or sometimes it is but they're using them differently. You don't know. I mean, one of your commandments where you don't put the um, the people, the band on the cover of the album. So a lot of the albums that you don't know who right. they are, you may see them in interviews and in underground interviews or in, in zines, which we didn't even get to what zines are. Uh, so you may you may know the names. Maybe if you're really into that music or into the scene, uh, maybe you might. But most of the times you don't. So when you listen, like when I listen to the music, I have no idea what the people look like. I don't know the people. All I know is the music. And it is so equal yin to the, you know, hard rocks yang. It, it's almost going in the opposite direction in every way possible that you could. And I think the epitome of that and the epitome of what you guys were trying to do is Godspeed you, Black Emperor, exclamation point, which then became Godspeed Emperor, exclamation point, uh, Godspeed you, yeah. exclamation point, Black Emperor. Godspeed you, uh, that was it. <laughs> Godspeed you, Black Emperor. <laughs> right, emphasis is very important, Bruce. Yeah. Uh, but I, what I liked about them is that they were so weird and wrapped in mystery that even they were kind of a mystery to themselves, but they, they operated as an entity. They dealt with you as one, you know, as a unit. Uh, but they, but no one knew who they mm-hmm. were, but they knew the music and they loved them. But they kind of were essentially the epitome of what you were doing and, you know, what you guys were representing. They were in a lot of ways. They were, uh, Godspeed were and are a mobile autonomous unit. They make decisions collectively. They stick to them. And they are not particularly concerned with the the rules or the dynamics of the music business. They've they've carved out their own path, and they've been lucky enough to be uh, accepted at a level where they can do that. Yep, which isn't easy, by the way. That they are an anomaly of an anomaly. Yeah, it's not easy. You know, the um, one band I can think of that has done something similar is Fugazi, but people knew the members of Fugazi from other bands. What was interesting to me about writing the book and considering the times we live in now was that the high watermark of grunge, alt-rock, right? If you walk down the street of Chicago or any other city or even, you know, a small town in America, You'd see somebody with a flannel shirt and maybe uh, maybe work boots and ripped up jeans. Definitely. And you're like, that guy's into grunge. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's a, they have the outfit. He's an all rocker. Yeah. Right. There were the, the tribal markers. The music uh, cranky artists were making and some other artists were making, those markers were not there. Mm. Right. You, you could very well see someone you know, in a, uh, in a tweed jacket with horn rimmed glasses. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you could, you could see someone wearing, uh, you know, you could see someone wearing, uh, a tracksuit. 
you know, it, that they were they were beginning to dissipate in the culture anyway. And by the time you know we get to the 20th century, everything's all you know everything is a flat circle, and every you know the the old uh, many of the old teenage subcultures have disappeared. Um, or merged, or just you know, today today I'm gonna dress up like a a rockabilly guy, and tomorrow I'm you know I'm gonna go to work at the accounting firm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so in that sense, it was uh, it was somewhat I think prophetic. But really, what it was about for us was the listener decides. The listener gets what they want out of the music. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's music they can return to time and time again. And we're not going to tell them what it's about, who made it, where they did it, uh, what they thought about it. It's you get out of it what you want to get out of it. And in that, to that extent, to that uh, sense, to me it was a little, you know, possibly uh, – something like some of the more atmospheric fringes of jazz music or the classical world, you know, who in the, you know, who in the world thinks about what Jan Sibelius was wearing? I mean, there are, you know, there, <laughs> there are some composers that you have, you know, that the mental image comes to mind, Beethoven, Mozart. No, but most of them are guys with beards. Um, you you listen to that music and it's a personal experience for you, you know. Where um, and that's that's really what we were interested in that sort of music that uh, people people get something out of, they connect with, and uh, they connect with on a on a level that isn't guided by uh, the lyrics and the and the inside of the record album or the way the band dresses or any of those things that's that's the sort of music that joel and i liked individually and returned to time and time again uh it takes me back to my experiences as a teenager listening to music on headphones yep that's uh that's what i think a lot of the the cranky bands uh were able to achieve and a few of them, and the, uh, the, there were a few of them in the live setting. Godspeed, uh, most notably, but also Low, the band Low, are very good, uh, very uh, charismatic, and very uh, focused in live performance. And uh, Stars and Live put together amazing multimedia performances as did uh, Lossel. So the there were bands that were able to do that live, uh, but it wasn't necessary for them to do that live to be on the label. Well, I think that's interesting because, you know, you also mentioned in the book, there's a lot of crossover between the underground scenes of, of comics, cinema, uh, music, and a lot of this was available in record stores, which is which is a whole other conversation. But I think the, the important question mm-hmm. that I have to ask you, uh, after hearing you talk about music and the way you talked about film, uh, it's very similar. Uh, how do you think... That Laberford's precision stacks up to, you know, Johnson Van Johnson's the 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 taste of the smell of cherries. How do you think that those stack up as far as influential um, influential in their own medium? Well, I think Laberford are very influential, and all you have to do to confirm that is go to Spotify if you listen to Spotify and Google Ambient or Drone and see how many playlists come up. You can go to, I don't know if you're familiar with Bandcamp, but you can go to Bandcamp, and every month they have a Best New Music Ambient. Hmm, okay. And that's directed to people, you know, by and large, to people who are interested in underground rock music, underground music that would not, that would not exist if it was not for Le Bradford and Stars. It would not be there, and I have... I will fight anybody who tells me differently. Okay. Well, I don't want you know I don't want a confrontation. Or I will at least throw some mean words. At sure. Them. Well, I, you know I don't want a confrontation, so I'm going to agree with everything that you said. Also, because I don't know any better. Uh, but two questions I've got to ask: 
you know, in uh, so you, you you were there for the success of Cranky. You were able to see it, you know, build a back catalog, become not only financially independent and could stand on its own, but then it become profitable and you guys were able to work at it full time. Uh, so in 2000, I think it's 2005, you, you left the label, you sold your half to Joel. Uh, was this was, was this to get out of that particular label? Were you kind of uh, dis, you know disenchanted with the industry? Uh, did you and Joel kind of not see eye to eye? What was the reason for for leaving? Um, it was a little combination of all of those. Uh, there's a point in your life, or there was a point in my life, where uh, I came to understand that I wasn't going to be able to or be interested in sitting at a bar at three o'clock in the morning, talking about music with someone 20 years younger than me. Right. <laughs> sure. Trying to persuade them to do something. Uh-huh. Yeah, right? that makes sense. Um, fine, you know, fine and dandy. We all, you know, we all go through phases and change in life. And um, it was it's sort of a young person's game. Uh when I came up through it, it was very much a young white male game. Uh, exclusion of uh, racial minorities, uh, abuse, manipulation, exploitation of women. There was a point where I, uh, I was just thought to myself, I've done this long enough. It was the time when the industry was changing. People were downloading stuff illegally, you know, in essence, from my point of view, stealing music and feeling fine about it. The ways I had of working and doing publicity were not as productive as they used to be. And that was very frustrating to me. It was frustrating to Joel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every, every partnership has a lifetime of its own. Yeah. Right. And so we agreed to go separate ways. Um, it was not easy. I also got married that year, so I tell people I was married and divorced in the same <laughs> right, year. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I can feel like a divorce. I understand that. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, there were lawyers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was that was sort of where I was at, and you know, I don't envy people that that uh, do my job in the music business. I don't envy anybody uh, in that business. Has become much harder. Uh, and after COVID, a lot of the networks and the logistics and the formats uh, for bands to record and perform and travel are completely smashed to pieces and will have to be put together. Right. And I have a lot of admiration for the people that continue to do that. Uh, that's not me. Um, but I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be, I'd like and hope that I have uh, some encouragement to give, and maybe some uh, some lessons. But that's you know that's up to people to decide for themselves. But it's a you know it is to quote it's the 30th anniversary by the way of the sub pop grunge dictionary. Oh, I was I was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought you brought it up first, but I, I was going to mention that. Yeah, it's a harsh realm. Yeah. <laughs> right the cobnobblers have not gone away. The cobnobblers, the the butt nuggets, dingleberry smoothie, they're still around. They're still around, yeah. It's not easy to score. Yep. I, uh, <laughs> I was working at Touch and Go when that came out. Uh -huh. And Megan, who was the publicity person at Sub Pop, I would talk to her about you know, once every other week, once a week on the phone, just because she's an amazing person. And we had wonderful conversations and our two labels are sort of moving in a parallel path. Uh, you know, I'd be like, hey, we got this record by Slint. Check it out. And she'd, you know, next week she'd be, hey, that Slint record is great. I think you'd like this coding record. They're a lot like that. Um, so when she when she pulled that off at the New York Times, oh, I laughed and laughed. I rolled on the floor. <laughs> So let me. So in 2007, really quickly here before we close up here, as we as we you know transition into our promo part of the of the episode, we got to get people going to your to your websites. In 2007, you started your own label called Flinko, uh, Flinko Sound System. Right. Now that was two years after 2005. Is that? And I know you had like a whole mm -hmm. different approach to that. That was kind of a more digital subscription based. Uh, and when I looked at the Bandcap site, you have 
24 albums, I believe, on there. So is that still going? Yep. Did it did it work? I mean, so is this your own label? Uh, what's what's the story with that? It's, um, you know, I had a so much hair cranky, and my wonderful wife said, "Hey, you should start your own record label." And I said, "No, no, no." Um, waited a couple of years, and then, uh, much like the experience with Le Bradford. It came across this one-man black metal operation called Wernlerd. Totally blew my mind. So I decided to start a record label with him. And at this point in life, in my life, uh, after Cranky, for a while, in terms of musical interest, my inner seventeen-year-old had taken over. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh oh. <That's... laughs> and my inner, my inner, my inner seventeen-year-old was like, I want to rock but I want to rock in a cynical, disaffected way. <laughs> That's very 17 years old. That is that. That was very 17 yeah. years old. Yeah. Um, and so I, was, I was, was listening to a lot of uh, hardcore black metal, but Wernlerd seemed, seemed to mix that with Appalachian music. The guy who is Wernlerd grew up playing guitar and... Uh, bluegrass with his family. Um, but anyway, so I decided to try it. I thought, well, the, the, way to, the way to do this in the digital world is to have a subscription service. It turned out to be very complicated and expensive Definitely. Uh, to set up your own server yeah. and, and put the files there. And, yeah. And all it's that. a nightmare. Um, it's a nightmare. Uh, and this is pre-Bandcamp. Um, so it, the experiment didn't work. Uh, I went into it understanding that I could lose money, and I did. <laughs> right. And that was fine. Right. I think you have to, you know, in any creative endeavor, uh, you have to be prepared to have to be prepared to put money on the table, and you have to accept that there's a possibility that you could lose it. Or you ask other people for money, and they get to control what you do with it. So there's the you're you're dealing with the devil one way or the other. Right, one way or another. Um, and I'd rather burn my own money because I can get I can get more money. It was very rewarding in a lot of ways. I'm glad I did it. The label is dormant now. I still get emails every week from somebody who wants you know Slinko to put out a record. Somehow that word hasn't gotten around. Well, someone's like sitting on your website with a very strange uh, fake newsletter there, by the way, on Flinko Duck, Flinko Sound or FlinkoCosound.com or whatever. Yeah, somebody took over the somebody took over the website. I think I let that last. Yeah, that's right. So you know, thank you, anonymous person in Russia or North Korea. Right, <laughs> right. Um, taking full advantage. Well, I will tell you this. I mean, so so it was. It's dormant now, but it, I mean, I think it's it's. There, there's definitely success there. You've got several um, several albums, and I know one thing that is out that's not dormant, and that's your writing ability. Uh, you know, you have um, you know this book. It's you're with stupid. It comes out in November, I believe. We're a little early with this episode, but when when yep. the episode comes out, I believe uh, the book will come out. Um, you're going to be here in L.A. on December 10th, as a matter of fact, uh, promoting the release of the book. That's right. Uh, I will more. I will definitely stop by and, and say hi. You don't know what I look like. People don't know. I'm going to teach you a little bit about the background of how I make this podcast. Uh, I could not get the video to work. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you will you will see a static picture of Bruce. He is not a robot. He's a live person. Um, but hopefully I will get to meet you in person there. But for people who can't do that and want to get a hold of your book or get a hold of you, or even download those Flinko Sound albums, how can they do that? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me as a person. Uh, speaking of obsolescent uh, technologies, I have a blog on Tumblr called Here With Stupid. So that'd be one way to find me. You can get the book from the University of Texas Press and any good uh, bookstore uh, across the world, really, they're doing an amazing job. Um, you know, if you if you have to, we're on Amazon, uh, electronic, and the book is hardcover, beautiful, beautiful cover work, beautiful artwork by Lonnie Hurley from Portland, Oregon. Um, so that that's what I would that's what I would suggest if there's anybody out there who wants to get the book and wants to know more. 
about me, uh, Flinko Sound on Bandcamp. Uh, it's sort of the de facto website for that. There's a lot of music, and you can stream and listen to things there. Uh, all that all that stuff is also available in the nooks and crannies of Spotify or uh, whatever streaming uh, system you care to use. Um, the University of Texas Press website will have information on uh, book readings and appearances. I've been very fortunate uh, in that a bunch of really cool, well-informed, uh, sprightly individuals will be appearing with me, asking questions and prodding me, uh, talking about the book and music in general at a Los Angeles parents, we're going to have DJs from the Dub Lab uh, web radio station. If you've ever listened to them, uh, check that out, dublab.com. It's fantastic streaming radio. Um, so, yeah, that, that will take me through the balance of the year, and then uh, I'll keep plugging away and see what uh, I can come up with to do in January, because... Uh, you know, commerce doesn't stop uh, with the change of the years, and I, you know, I'd like to like to see some more of the country while, I'm, while I have the possibility, and then uh, you know, I'll be writing more, you know, writing another book. So I love it. Well, that that's great, uh, and I love all that, and and hopefully people can come and check that out. And of course, if you like this show, uh, you can find us on fascinatingnouns.com and on social media, fascinating noun on Twitter fascinating nouns on Facebook. That's where you can find us. And I'm going to put all the links uh, to everything that you heard here with Bruce. Uh, but, you know, Bruce, this is just absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time out. And thank you for for educating me on the music industry uh, and helping me break down some of those bears. So I, while I don't feel like an insider, uh, I do feel like a little, I feel like uh, le less of a newbie. And, and I really appreciate that. So thank you so much, Bruce, for that and for being on the show today. Thanks. I appreciate the call, Daniel. I appreciate, uh, you know, I love, love to talk about music. So let's get together in December and uh, continue the conversation. Of course, Bruce. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.